think that one of the key issues here is we talk a lot about the statistics in these tools and whether the statistics are legitimate. But at the end of the day, these still end up being policy questions. Mm -hmm. A statistical tool, even a, a perfect statistical tool, might say that, you know, I have a 50% chance of committing a crime. Whether you think that's a high risk or a low risk or a medium risk is a policy decision. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, a story at the intersection of data and criminal justice. Risk assessment is a tool that tries to measure the likelihood that someone who has committed a crime will do so again. And this tool is now being used, among other things, in sentencing decisions. In other words, if someone is more likely to commit another crime, we may lock them up for longer. In other other words, we might start locking people up for crimes they haven't yet committed. That story's in a minute, but first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Can I, can, about? can I tell you a number? You can tell me a number? Yes. The number is 49.7%, okay. which is, that is the no percentage of all emails that are spam. Is that true? No, I didn't, I didn't just make that up. Oh, yeah, okay. it's like a, it was like a recent survey that showed that. <laughs> but I appreciate your skeptical mind. <laughs> I believe you, I guess. I don't know you. I have no reason to trust you. But I'm holding a microphone. That does not mean anything. Uh, back to the number. Yes, 49.7. 49.7. Well, um, I'm actually pretty good about clearing out my email and unsubscribing myself from anything I don't want to receive. So my email inbox is probably not 47%, 49.7% spam. But, but do you believe it? Uh, that almost half of all emails are spam? I would have a hard time believing that. I would think... Less than 25% would be my guess. Right. And presumably your email filter, you, you know, your email system is filtering out a lot of these before they even get to you. What, what exactly are they trying to accomplish with their spam? That is a good question posed by that woman, Nicole Devereaux. Ruben Fischerbaum, a visual journalist here at 538, is with us to perhaps answer that question. He took a look at this survey that gave us the 49.7% number. Uh, Ruben, let's start there. What are spammers trying to accomplish? Well, I mean, spammers want to make money. It seems crazy to me, too, because most of the spam you get seems like it's not really going to fool anyone, but it just has to fool one or two people. It's cheap to send out tens of thousands of emails. If someone, one person sends a credit card number back in or a social security number, it seems like it's paid off. This is spam that's coming from bots, right? Yeah, I mean, you get the impression that some of it's coming from bots. They're certainly being sent out as kind of big blasts, but a lot of times there's still people writing it. Back when you talk, when you talk about the Nigerian scams, people have gone to the places where those emails are coming from, and those are people at computers sending out tons of emails. Another thing that she mentioned is she said, oh, I, I don't subscribe to certain lists, so I try and keep a clean inbox. And a lot of people, when they hear spam, think about all those stupid lists that you got somehow subscribed to. But that's not what this is, right? This is like pure scammy spam. Right. No, I had the exact same reaction that she did. I actually – I had basically forgotten about this type of spam where – but it's still in there. So I have Gmail, as a lot of people do. It's a great spam filter. I don't get those sort of emails, but if you, they're still there. You can click on them. Earlier today, someone asked me to find an attorney in the New York City area. Uh, someone wants me to put a mobile app and put the power in people's hands. And these things, they just don't get, make it to me. And so when I think of spam nowadays, it's kind of uh, airlines that I'm not unsubscribed from or someone's product I bought two years ago and they keep sending me emails. And that's 
totally not what spam used to mean. I feel like we need a new name for that kind of email. Yeah. Google breaks it out. They call it something. They call it promotions now, which seems like it's very kind of them. Yes. And the other thing we learned is this 49.7% number is actually the lowest it's been in a long time. So does that mean the bots are somehow losing? So I think the bots aren't losing. I think the bots are just migrating away from email. Back 10 years ago, the only way you would get this sort of spam was through email. And that's just not true anymore. I get, I check my email every day. I also check Facebook. I check Twitter. I mean, you could kind of make the case that if what these spammers are trying to do is win people's confidence and get them to give them financial information, it's a lot easier and a lot more personal to do that on social media than to just cold call someone through email. So I feel like that has to be kind of counted into that number. Ruben Fischerbaum, thank you for doing this. All right. Thank you for having me. In the studio are Ben Castleman, writer for 538, and Dana Goldstein of The Marshall Project. They collaborated, our two shops collaborated, on a big story this week describing the world of so-called risk assessment, tests that try to determine how likely someone who has committed a crime is to commit another crime. Ben, Dana, thanks for doing this, and I'll mention that Anna Marie Jester also collaborated on this with you two. Welcome to What's the Point? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So I always find it a little weird to say congratulations to a reporter around a story like this. So I will just say uh, thank you and bravo for doing, you know, committing an act of real journalism that shines a light on a really important issue. Thanks. So Dana, do you want to describe what risk assessment is? Sure. So risk assessment tools are generally questionnaires. They look a little bit like a quiz that you might take in a magazine, and they assign points um, for characteristics that an individual might have after being arrested that researchers have found are associated with individuals who continue to commit new crimes in the future. So, for example, Jody, you would get one point where I would get zero points because you are male and I am female, and men are more likely to be, say, career criminals. So this is what a risk tool looks like. Um, It's typically a probation officer, maybe staff at a jail, um, a counselor who's filling it out on behalf of an offender. So it's an actual form. I mean, is is it a computer program? Is it a paper form? Sometimes. So sometimes it's in the sort of simplest form that Dana's describing there. It's It's a literal form that somebody's filling out, or I mean, it could be on a computer. We are now starting to see some more advanced statistical techniques. So the sort of classic ones are, are this just sort of add up the numbers. And, and we're now starting to see ones that uh, use machine learning, which is something that you've talked about on the show before, um, to, to try to get beyond just what the sort of simplest statistics can tell you. And so when this math ends up uh, affecting someone's life, who is making the decision? Who's using this risk assessment and how are they using it? So when we're talking about Pennsylvania, we're talking about a new change that's coming online this year, which is to use it in sentencing. So for example, you've already been convicted of a crime and now we're going to decide how long you may go to prison for. And my understanding is that the judge will look at the score, but will still have some discretion in terms of um, letting it inform his or her decision, but it doesn't have to be the only factor 
in his or her decision. Um, Do they give any guidance about what percentage you should weigh this versus all the other things that judges traditionally decide on? So in Pennsylvania, this is all still being worked out to some degree. But if if you look in Virginia, for example, where this is being used on a smaller scale but has been for about a decade, yeah, they'll, they'll it factors into a, into the recommended sentence, right? So already in many states, right, there are uh, sentencing guidelines, um, not necessarily based on risk assessment but based on other factors. And so in a sense, this is just another piece that gets put in there. And they say if somebody has a gets a twenty three on a risk assessment, then they ought to be sentenced to two years. Years for this, and if they get something lower, then they ought to be sentenced only to one year. But it's up to the discretion of the judge to say, I'm going to weigh this number versus what I saw during the trial, or you know, whether I like this guy or girl. Or There will be a recommendation about how long the sentence ought to be, or a range of recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, but the judges in general can, can choose to set that aside or, or can fit, pick where in that range they want to choose. And put this in the context of the the influence of data on the criminal justice system as a whole. Is this the the cutting edge of the use of of data when it comes to at least sentencing and making decisions about uh, people's futures? Yeah, I mean, so risk assessment has been used in one form or another for decades. And this kind of statistically driven tool is is nothing new. These are getting used throughout the criminal justice system. They're getting used in the beginning in bail decisions. Do we release you uh, while waiting for uh, for trial or, or, or do we keep you incarcerated? They're getting used at the, at the back end in parole decisions. Do we let you out uh, early or do we keep you in prison. They're getting used in probation to decide how closely we need to supervise people who are out under supervision. Uh, They're getting used in the correction system to decide what facilities people are in and what kind of treatment they get while they're in there and programs that they get. So they're they're really being used throughout. Sentencing is kind of the outer edge of this that's now just starting to gain traction. And that's the place that has that pre-crime scary notion that a lot of people are, are worried about. Absolutely. Although, you know, experts make the point that parole in some sense is the same issue, right? It's still a question of are you behind bars or are you out based on this prediction? It's just whether that decision is made at the front end or the back end. You described this form a little bit, Dana, but I, I wonder if we can actually go through the, the rubric. And we have – you have in your article a chart that shows how someone would be graded and we have it here in the studio as well. So we're putting it up on the on the screen behind us. So, Ben, can you just describe what we're looking at and, when, and what exactly is, is a part of this assessment? Yeah, so this is um, this is from Pennsylvania. Um, some, it's proposed to be used in sentencing, and basically, this is um, how how you would score based on all of these questions. At the top, there you see different levels of crime. So we uh, the the OG is the offense gravity level. So. Uh, uh, a, a high-level DUI may be worse than a, than being just over the limit, and a murder is going to be, you know, obviously substantially further than that. Uh, and then there are each of these questions. So you have sex, and again, as Dana was saying, you get a point for being a man and none for being a woman. And that's because we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about these priors that go into this uh, algorithm, but that's because the data shows that men are more likely to commit crimes again if they've committed a crime before. And in most cases, these are these are based on regression analyses, right? They they have gone back, they've pulled data on thousands of past uh, 
past criminals or past convicted criminals, looked at what they've done in the in the future um, over the course of the study, and then they they look at which variables turn out to be most predictive. If you're under 25, you'll get a point for being young. If you dropped out of high school, uh, that's something you would get a point for. If you're unemployed, you'll get a point. Uh, you may get a point because you've moved recently, because you live in a neighborhood uh, that has high crime. By far the three strongest in basically any study are sex men are more likely to commit than women, age, younger people in general are more likely to recommit than, than yeah, older people, and prior criminal history, which is perhaps not surprising. If you've done it in the past, you're more likely to do it in the future. And each one of these gets a score, and then the score gets what, added up, run through some sort of algorithm. Literally In this case, literally added up, uh, and then that will that will translate basically to a probability but yeah i mean it, you know you would get a score of you're a you're a 15 and i'm a 12 and dana's a seven I, I think that one of the key issues here is we talk a lot about the statistics in these tools and whether the statistics are legitimate uh, and i think there are interesting questions there but at the end of the day these still end up being policy questions mm-hmm. and so you know a, a, a statistical tool even a, a perfect statistical tool might say that, you know, I have a 50% chance of, of committing a crime. Whether you think that's a high risk or a low risk or a medium risk is a policy decision. Whether you think that means I should be kept in prison or let out, if I should be monitored or how, those are policy decisions. And so when we're talking about whether these tools work, whether they have the effect that we're hoping they have, you can't divorce that from the policy discussion about do we now lock people up based on this or do we let them out based on this? It's further upstream that the real implications for criminal justice uh, are, are taking place. This is kind of a manifestation of all the other biases and so forth that are baked into the criminal justice system. Well, and, and, and Dana talked before about how there's this interesting sort of bipartisan appeal to these. And mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. But it's interesting that in theory, they can accomplish sort of all these things at once, right? In theory, they can uh, reduce incarceration and reduce cost and reduce recidivism and reduce racial bias in the system. Once you get to the point of implementing them in the real world, you have to start making choices, right? You have to decide, is it worse for us to lock up people who might not be a real threat? Or is it worse for us to let out people who do end up posing a threat? And and once you start to actually have to draw those lines, then it becomes a much trickier thing than sort of this ideal world where oh we're only going to lock up high risk people and we're going to let low risk people out. Have you noticed the partisan response to this reporting? No, I mean I think it's been much more technocrats versus people who are more worried about the moral implications here. Mm-hmm. Um, technocrats being strongly in favor of risk assessment and the use of risk assessment, and um, other folks being much more concerned about potential civil rights issues that these bring up. It's been really interesting um, at some of the local levels where this gets done. We've seen uh, – Pennsylvania is an interesting example of this – where the uh, the defense attorneys on the ground are often much more cautious about it than the um, sort of policymaking public defenders, right, public defenders agencies, right, because they sort of look at – 
this whole big picture and they say, you know, our defendants are are not being treated fairly right now in this system and so this is a way to try to improve it. But then the people who are sitting there defending an individual, an individual. with a high score. With a high score. <laughs> they don't become, like this. Right, they don't like this. Idea. Well, this is a theme as part of the show and it's certainly a theme as part of the reporting that we do, this tension between large trends and then individuals. And I think this it, this particular example almost upends one of the problems that we often run into because a lot of times when we work with data, we try and guard against taking one individual's details and extrapolating towards saying that's the lo- the way the larger trend is. And this is sort of the reverse, which is it's asking, is it fair to extrapolate from larger trends to one individual? And I mean, one way to think about this is, you know, something that would get you points. And remember, if you're sitting for a risk assessment, you don't want points. You want to have a low score. But something that would get you points on a risk assessment is living in a high crime neighborhood. Now we know that high crime neighborhoods have a higher police presence. And for example, young adolescent men in those neighborhoods are much more likely to be arrested for drug possession, even though they use drugs at similar or lower rates. So that's an actual question. Do you live in a high crime neighborhood? In some I mean, it's almost amazing to me that the forum would admit that 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 is such a big part of our of criminality is your environment. Well, you have to think right when when they're what are they trying to predict? If what they're trying to predict is conviction of for a future crime, then it's <laughs> not surprising that the thing that best predicts it are the same things that end up leading to uh, being convicted of a current crime. Right. But the issue there is right. The convicted of and arrested for is different than committed. You could have two people who both uh, drink and drive, but one of them gets pulled over. Right for it and ends up going to jail for it and one of whom doesn't and then one of those people has it on their record and the other person doesn't that they both committed the act right so to some extent what we're predicting here is people who are you know bad enough at committing crime to get caught committing crime or they are black so they're more likely to get pulled over and their neighborhood that they live in is more likely to be heavily policed and so that's where you really get to the crux of like what's complex and controversial here so let's let's go right to that racial question because this form that we've been looking at it very conspicuously does not ask about race but as you discuss in your piece it effectively does how so well, I mean, so there are many questions that get used uh, both in this Pennsylvania risk assessment and then in, in other risk assessments that get used that have strong connections to race, right? So this one asks whether you live in an urban neighborhood or in a, in a rural or suburban neighborhood, right? Well, we know that, that that ends up being a very, very strong proxy for race. Um, all of these tools use prior criminal history, as as an element. But for exactly the reasons that Dana was just talking about, that has a strong racial component. If you've been and, and in Pennsylvania they're talking about looking at arrests, not even convictions. Well we know that arrest statistics are hugely skewed racially. And so yeah, you do have this concern about a feedback loop that it, it sort of mm-hmm. becomes baked into the risk assessment. And so not only did being black make you more likely to get arrested the first time, but now it makes you more likely to stay in prison longer um, than, than somebody else. And here's one concrete example. If you're asking about prior juvenile record, which is one of the questions on this proposed uh, Pennsylvania risk assessment, you know, certain schools have a much higher police presence than other schools. So, for example, if you're a juvenile 
in a fight at school and you attend a majority black low-income urban school, you're much more likely to get arrested as a result of that fight as opposed to sending, being sent to the principal's office. So th- this is some of like the real-world implications here. I think something that's important to recognize, though, is this is the compared to what question. Yes. And this is something that defenders of risk assessment make this point all the time, which is, are are there strong racial components in risk assessments? Absolutely there are. I don't think there's anybody who could claim that there isn't. But there's a huge racial bias in the existing system, in all of our criminal justice system. So does this move us closer to a, a more equitable system? I, I think that there is evidence that it that it does. Now, you, it, you know, we don't have one criminal justice system in this country, right? We have thousands of local criminal justice systems and 50 state systems, and they differ in how much racial bias they have and in how they how they function. And so a risk assessment could be better than some of them and not as good as others. But yeah, I mean, at the very least, a risk assessment is not going to look across the table and look at somebody and say, you look like a criminal. And we know that that happens consciously or subconsciously in the criminal justice system every day. I think it may be useful to think about our political moment in terms of the larger criminal justice system and why we're talking about risk assessment so much now in particular. Um, And it really has to do with a bipartisan consensus that something needs to change. And as we get away from what we really focused on the 80s and 90s, which was mandatory minimums, where judges had less and less discretion and the discretion really went to prosecutors and by the decision of what crime to charge you with, the sentence was just sort of baked in. Um, this is a way to, to be data-driven. Um, it has the sort of sheen of objectivity. Um, and also it has the promise of lowering costs. So, for example, if we're using this to identify the riskiest offenders and we're only going to have a long prison sentence for those folks, perhaps other people can just be on probation. Maybe we'll put an ankle strap on them with GPS monitoring. Um, and maybe this will all be a lot cheaper. Um, because we're incarcerating fewer people. And that is very attractive to people on the right. But on the left, there's supporters of risk and needs assessment who are really excited about, you know, taking racial bias out of the system. And they hope that, you know, one source who I spoke to for the piece said, well, a judge could look at a kid whose pants are down around his ankles and say, I don't like that guy. (laughs) I'm going to give him a stiffer sentence. Um, And a tool like this holds out some hope people believe, um, for correcting individual, perhaps subconscious bias. But going back to the first part of your point there, which I think is really important, and perhaps some people are, you know, this article is like a, like a Rorschach test. I feel like everyone who reads it is bringing a lot of what they already think about the criminal justice system to it and finding, because like good journalists, you sort of are comfortable in, in nuance and difficulty in this piece, they're finding whatever they want to read. But a lot of people are reacting to this in a way that doesn't I don't think realize that this is intended to get people out of jail, right? In theory, this is reducing the number of people that we're sending to prison through mandatory sentencing, like you pointed out, but also being a positive tool and directing people towards the services they need in order to not commit future crimes. Yeah. So the the term that experts use to describe these tools are risk and needs assessment. And we kind of shorten that as shorthand so we can understand it to risk assessment. But 
but they would argue that the needs portion is in fact equally important. You know, if you sit down with an offender and, and you're, say, a counselor and you're filling one of these questionnaires out, you can ask them questions. You know, how do you feel about your romantic relationship? Do you get along with your boss? These are actual questions that exist on some of these tools. And the answer, so it's almost a social yeah. services kind of. Some of them. I mean, that's, some of them. There, many of them don't have that element. And, and some of these are explicitly just mm-hmm. risk assessments, not risk and needs. But yeah, that some of these have these very the, these, you know, counselor style questions that then can be used to direct you to services that you might be deemed to need. I think there's some there's some promise here for eradicating bias, but ultimately it's not going to get us all the way there or even, you know, 10 percent of the way there. And the, eradicating the racial bias that is built into our criminal justice system through issues such as neighborhood inequality, housing segregation, educational segregation, and so on and so forth. As we've been saying, the, 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 the biases and inequalities start kind of further back in this process. And this isn't going – this is in many ways just reflecting that. But let me play the role of the person who's freaked out by this. I read this headline and I, I try and give myself a quota of minority report references on this show because <laughs> I feel like I could do it every week. But I read this headline and say we're locking people up for crimes they haven't committed. We are t- reducing people to a s- simple rubric. I mean, look at this thing. It's, you know, it's a six by six box and we're taking your entire life and your entire future and reducing it to this. This is unfair. This is unconstitutional. And I know there are constitutional objections to this as well. What do you say to people who just are freaked out by this? So, I mean, we certainly heard that from a lot of people uh, in our reporting and, uh, and, and since the story ran. I, I think that it's important to recognize, again, in this compared to what question, it is not like risk assessments are not being made in the criminal justice system now. They're just frequently being made without the assistance of data or a formal – By report. judges. You've by got a judge sitting officers. there who looks at two, two people right. – accused of the same crime or convicted of the same crime and and sentences one to a longer sentence in part because you know he thinks that 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 guy is more likely to commit another crime than this other guy so we this is happening already just it's being done by judges on their experience and their instinct and maybe whether in their bad mood that day and at least this does have some element of statistical validity to it one thing i'll add is it's it's worth i think thinking a little bit about the history of this the research that has led to the risk assessment assessment movement has already overturned incorrect beliefs that criminal justice practitioners such as judges had for many decades. So, for, like so for example, um, in the late 1960s, it used to be thought that people who were mentally ill were the most likely to reoffend over and over and over again violently. And it turned out that actually mentally ill people were among the less likely uh, criminals to reoffend. So Thanks to the sort of big data sets that social scientists have looked at, um, they've been able to overturn some biases within the system. And now that's common knowledge among experts because of this type of research. I want to go back to our judge who's sitting there and making this decision and and weighing all these factors and looking at this tool because another theme of this show that comes up is the sort of thrall of data, right? And And the sort of seductive nature of big data and these analytical tools. And you, Dana, even used the term, the the sheen of objectivity. And do you worry that judges are going to become enthralled by this notion that 
we finally have cracked it. The code is telling me what to do. No. (laughs) I think it's much more likely that they will overlook it, actually. I mean, we heard again and again in our reporting about judges just feeling that their gut instinct and their professional expertise was better than the hard data and that they would prefer maybe not to look at it. One implication of that is actually if this is supposed to be a needs assessment as well, if the judge isn't buying it, then maybe he's shutting himself off from an opportunity to give someone help. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for example, if a, if a defendant, you know, needs uh, substance abuse counseling, you know, there have been cases that I, you know, reported on in this piece where a judge looked at the defendant and they scored low risk, but the judge thought that they were, you know, totally drug addicted and wanted to get them help. So that drove the decision to incarcerate um, from the judge's perspective. So judges are using these or not using them in in all sorts of different ways. And I, I think what ultimately will happen is that this will be one piece of evidence that judges look at among all sorts of other types of evidence. And how do people on the ground who have to use these tools feel about them? Um, I did an interview with a probation officer in Ohio who uses it quite frequently to determine, for example, how often to give someone a drug test or whether they need a GPS device. Um, He had really mixed feelings about it. Um, This guy has a master's degree in criminology. He's really well aware of the research that shows that their predictive power is valid. Um, But there's understaffing at his facility. He deals with 160 offenders at any one given time, and he just doesn't have the time that he feels he needs uh, to really delve into the questions. And and the type of questions that he asks um, on his Ohio risk assessment tool are very therapeutic in nature. Um, They really get into people's attitudes, their relationships with friends and family and coworkers. Um, And he, he has the training to do it, but he doesn't feel like he has the time to do it. Um, So his feelings about it are are pretty mixed. One thing I heard about um, from a psychologist who specializes in helping jurisdictions adopt risk and needs tools was that jurisdictions often um, choose the wrong one for them. So, for example, um, the LSIR is a very famous and well-known risk tool. It takes, you know, 45 or 60 minutes to fill out. It's not the right tool for a busy urban jail. Jail is where you go right after you got arrested. There could be hundreds of people per night in the jail, and the staff may have, you know, three to five minutes to spend on this. So you don't want to choose the wrong tool for what you're trying to get out of it. I think when you talk about the thrall of big data here, though, one one thing that is is worth looking at is how good is the data that we're using, and how much uh, how how good are the tools? Right. So there's, there's sort of these philosophical questions that we've been asking here about: Is it fair to use these, and how should they be used? But then there's also a whole suite of questions about: Are the tools themselves well designed? Is the data that they're using good? Are errors caught? It's especially true on tools unlike the Pennsylvania one that are sort of interview based, right? Mm-hmm. Where different different interviewers might rate your answer to a question differently um they if if they ask you know how how is your relationship your your how's your marriage for example which is a question that shows up in here it's it's possible that uh, that two different interviewers would score the same answer differently and then you can have you can have errors 
right? You, we see this all the time in any data set where, where somebody's age is coded wrong, where their prior criminal history, which may come from lots of different jurisdictions, you know, may not be, be coded in there properly. And so there's a whole set of questions about whether these are, these are effective and whether they're being implemented in a successful way that is, is separate from sort of then those philosophical questions about whether it's even legitimate in the first place. And what about the data set that's going into the predictive nature of this? You talked about some of the demographic data that males are more likely to commit crimes. Is, is that reliable? I mean, so I, I certainly the, the big picture takeaways. I think we're pretty clear on. We know that men are more likely to commit crimes. We know that younger people are more likely to commit crimes. I don't think there's sort of any question about that. When we start talking about putting sort of exact coefficients on these and trying to figure out exactly how to weight sex versus age versus history versus education, right? I think there's there are questions there. Right? We can have errors in the data, and then we can have errors as it applies to mm-hmm. an individual. So what what comes next? What are the policy implications here? How well, first off, how many states are considering this? You profile Pennsylvania. You talked about how Virginia is already doing it. Is this piecemeal, state by state? Is this be- going to become a national trend? It is a national trend. Our reporting suggests that in every state there is at least some jurisdiction. What do you mean suggests? <laughs> like we can't get the information? Yeah, nobody knows. I mean, this is something that I asked all the sources I talked to about, and there's no sort of concrete number of the number of counties, say, that are using this. Um, but there's over 60 different risk or needs assessment tools in use in the United States, according to one study that tried to look at that. Um, And I think it's only going to grow in popularity. So if this is only going to grow and we've identified some of the potential pitfalls, what can be done to improve this system? I mean, so I think one thing that's that's critical is that question of how well are they applied? How well are they designed? Some of these tools are pretty blunt instruments and others are are, have a lot more um, statistical validity. Um, some of these tools have been tested on the populations where they're being used, and some of them have not or have not been fully tested, right? So it's reasonable to think that the relationships between these variables could be different for a population in Philadelphia than in rural Pennsylvania or in rural Mississippi uh, or in Nevada. And so you need to make sure that these tools have been fully tested on the populations, that they're kept up to date as these relationships may change. Um, that the tools themselves are statistically valid, and that the the people applying them are trained, uh, and the people interpreting them mm-hmm. are trained. Right. So I think that those are steps that I think just about anybody could agree need to be taken. Again, separate from that, is this even a good idea? Question. Connecting this to some of the larger policy issues that 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 you mentioned, which is really what this tool both reflects and and maybe affects. Has Eric Holder said anything to? Has Obama ever heard? the word risk next to the word assessment? So Eric Holder gave a speech about this in Philadelphia uh, in August, a, a year ago, uh, in which he he said that risk assessment seems to have some potential in various places in the criminal justice system, that using data is a good thing, but that he had a lot of concerns specifically about using it in sentencing. And in particular, this idea of using characteristics over which people have no control, their sex, their age, indirectly race, uh, that using that in sentencing has has it really raises sort of fundamental uh, issues of fairness, and, and he came out pretty strongly against it. Interestingly, though, the federal government is funding 
quite a lot of the research that is leading states to say, hey, can we use this in sentencing? So it's a bit of a mixed message there. Ben Castleman, writer for 538, and Dana Goldstein of The Marshall Project, thank you so much for doing this, and thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Thanks for having us. If you want to read the 538 piece Dana and Ben wrote along with our colleague Anna Barry Jester, it's on our website now. Please do. It's critical reporting, and I'm proud to work alongside them. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel with help from Jordan Shulkin. 538's podcast and video intern is Asta Chattervedi. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can reach me by email. Find my address at 538.com slash podcasts. I'm on Twitter at Jody Avergan. A lot of you have been emailing ideas for future shows, guests to talk to, or worlds of data to explore. Please keep it coming. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the Song Exploder podcast. If you like What's the Point, subscribe using your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review in iTunes. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Hold up. 